these little shifts mm-hmm. in what we take for granted mm-hmm. or what we think is normal, right? Um, and how we interact with each other that does have a way of altering, right? The ways that we communicate and relate to each other, whether it's our families, our workplace, or um, our local communities. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Ken Keefley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And this is the Christ and Culture podcast. In today's Christ and Culture conversation, we'll talk with Dr. Felicia Wu Song about her new book, Restless Devices. After that, we have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, let's begin with our segment, In the News. So, Dr. Keithley, tensions are high, uh, is a bit of an understatement. Tensions are high between Russia and Ukraine at the moment, with some saying that Russia could, in fact, invade Ukraine. Now, this is constantly an an evolving story, and even by the time this airs, things may have changed. But what's behind the tension, and how can Christians pray for this situation at the border of Ukraine? I feel more comfortable with the second part of the question than I do the first part. Uh, Yes, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. There is a, uh, a strong, thriving evangelical population in the country of Ukraine. There are many evangelical churches, Baptist churches, schools and seminaries. I was talking to a colleague recently, a Dr. John Ewart, who taught students in Kiev. He was talking about the stress and tension that the students were experiencing. And I could understand that. Uh, can you imagine trying to study while you're in the midst of an existential crisis? Are 150,000 people with guns about to attack your homeland? What do I do? What do I do with my family? What do I do with my home, my church? Do I pick up a gun? Do, you know, what, what's the right thing to do here? So we need to pray for them, uh, and we need to pray for them fervently. As to the motives, I think that I know as mu- about as much as anyone else. Putin is a dictator. He has done things that dictators do. He has imprisoned his political opponents. He has murdered political opponents. He's willing to do whatever it takes. He says that he doesn't want NATO to come any closer to Russia. That is, if the Ukraine were to join NATO and he doesn't want that. Well, that's probably true, but I suspect that what's even more worrisome to him is the idea of a thriving democracy that's a Western-style democracy right on the border of Russia. You know, the one thing he doesn't want the Russian people to see is, uh, is, is what a democracy really looks like and how it can really truly thrive. So he's got all kinds of reasons and motivations for wanting uh, Ukraine to be reabsorbed. Like I said, I think that we need to pray for them uh, very fervently. One last thing then before we jump into our conversation with Dr. Song. We recorded this conversation over Zoom. The technology, ironically, wasn't cooperating quite as well as we'd hoped, though we're talking about technology with her. But we've salvaged as much as we can, and the conversation is fantastic. So we hope that you'll enjoy the podcast. You're probably listening to our podcast either on your smartphone, uh, your tablet, or perhaps your laptop. But 
what are our devices doing to us? A new book explores this important topic entitled, It's Restless Devices Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Let me say that again. There's a lot packed into this title. Restless Devices Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. And we're honored to have with us the author of this book, Dr. Felicia Wu Song. Dr. Song is a cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies. Dr. Song, I don't think I've ever met anyone else with, anyone else with quite that same title. <laughs> uh, a cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies, currently serving as professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Her publications include Virtual Communities, uh, Bowling Alone, Online Together, and other articles in scholarly journals. So we have a lot to talk about, Dr. Song. We're very grateful to have you this afternoon. Uh, let's, let's start in with this question. When we think about technology, we, we tend to think and also kind of tend to be pushed in one of two directions. Either it's good or it's bad. Is it is it that simple? And are those the categories that we ought to consider technology in? Hmm. I wish it was that simple. Um, I, I think it's much more helpful to think of technologies in terms of costs and benefits. That is that every technology um, for it to be useful has benefits, right? Um, but very often there are costs as well, and that um, it's important to hold both in mind to determine whether the benefits are worth the costs, right? And it definitely gives us a much more nuanced and, and we're much more capable, right, of holding on to um, a, a better understanding of, of why it is we continue to use the technologies that we do. So with that said, so you, you kind of sort of redefined rather than the good and bad, it's more of a cost benefit type of analysis, almost economic types of conceptions here. How, how then do you think about, um, sometimes we'll hear people say, well, the technology is neutral. It's more about how you use it. How would you respond to, to that kind of a response? Yeah, you know, I find the, the technology as a tool or technology as neutral perspective to, to not be very helpful mainly because, and this is um, certainly a, a standard way that a sociologist like me would think, we have to acknowledge the fact that our technologies actually are a part of a context, a social context, right? Mm -hmm. Technologies yeah. don't just drop out of the sky. We don't use them in some sort of ahistorical, asocial context. And so it's really important for us to recognize the ways that our technologies are produced by people, people, with a vision of what the good life is, what it means to be human, right? We use it in a society that we all know is shot through with values and vision of, again, the life is and what it means to be human. We need to think of our technologies as artifacts that are also infused with the, those kinds of visions and understandings of humanity. What got you so interested in this, Dr. Song? Why spend so much time uh, writing on this and speaking on this? Where did this come to really matter so much to you personally? My interest in media and technology started soon after college, um, and I'm going to date myself here. Um, I, I was working at a history teacher at a private school, and it was the first year that they brought email to the students. Oh, wow. <laughs> Email went mainstream. And what struck me at that time was the way in which at this small private school, we had no conversation about what this mm -hmm. would mean for our little community. There was no discussion. 
And it just struck me as being very odd for a community that much valued relationship, valued being a community that no questioning of how email would impact um, the way that we lived in relation to each other. And so from that point on, um, I'm interested in, in the, the social and cultural impact of our media and technology. And I stumbled upon Neil Postman's book, Amusing mm -hmm. Ourselves to Death, yeah. which I know many people have had a chance to read. And I was thrilled to discover, oh, there, there's actually a way to study this. Um, and so that, that kind of brought me down the path that I've been. So you got to tell me because email, anybody who knows me well knows that the bane of my existence is email. So if you're listening to this, please don't email me. Um, but what did it do for your community? When, when in email was introduced into that school, how did it affect the community? Early on, we're all gaga over our technologies. We're, we're amazed by it. Um, we play with it, right? Um, especially with young people, there's a lot of playfulness. It was a new mode, right? It was mm -hmm. an additional competing mode of communication um, that students had with each other that was changing up the ways that carried on their friendships and their conversations with classmates. And again, I think these are very subtle shifts, right? Um, and I'm not saying that, oh, you know, email came and, and it just destroyed the community. Not at all. But these little shifts mm -hmm. in what we take for granted or what we think is normal, right, um, in how we interact with each other, that does have a way of altering, right, the ways that we communicate and relate to each other, whether it's our families our workplace or um, our local communities. He's talked about dating yourself uh, by talking about the arrival of email. I'm going to do the same thing. I can remember uh, when the uh, the cell phone came became prominent in our society, and it occurred to me that the phone number no longer applies to the dwelling or to the place, but it applies to the person, and. That was a, a shift in my thinking. I remember that moment, the moment that that occurred to me. And then I remember setting up for my father, who is now gone to be with the Lord, his uh, very first computer, and he got email, and he was very excited about that. And whenever I went back to visit him a, a few days later, he was printing out each email. <laughs> because in his way of thinking it wasn't really communication unless it was on a piece of paper right and so i do understand these these conceptual changes uh, that you're talking about in a very real way what does it do to us as persons uh you you um the subtitle of your book references recovering personhood so in what sense uh, have we lost personhood and how might we recover it I mean, a shorthand of thinking about this might be to talk about how it is that when we live in our contemporary culture, often approached or treated as consumers, right? We're consumers of information, we're consumers of entertainment, right? We're consumers of, of products. And even when you think about the word users of a technology, I mean, user is such an interesting word, right? Um, when you think about other contexts in which have traditionally used the term users, right? It's mm. often used with like substance abuse, right? Um, where you're addicted to something is, um, I think those are kind of shorthand ways to start to get at the ways that our routine practices have a capacity to train us 
to act, to understand ourselves. I'm, I'm interested in exploring what aspects of our humanity are related to our embodiment, um, related to our capacities to be in relationship with other people in, in whole, whole-bodied ways um, and, and in communion, genuine communion with each other um, over and above merely um, being quote-unquote connected right, or merely being able to have an exchange with someone. And so um, my argument is that a lot of our, our digital practices have tendencies to train us away from that vision of what it means to be a person. You know, uh, as you, you talk about that, and I'm, I'm thinking about how the internet used to be external to uh, us as persons, and yet it seems to be uh, that seems to be changing because, you know, now it's it's in our pockets, it's on our wrist, um, it's woven into the very fabric of our everyday lives. I have to tell you, um, you know, I, my wife and, and and my son, uh, you know, we have a we have a not just smartphones, but we have a smart house, and mm-hmm. so it it um, when my wife wants to order detergent, our toothpaste and other things, you know, she has it set up where it does this automatically. I could hear a lot of people saying, you know, well, it, this is improving my quality of life. What, you know, where's the problem here? So explain to us, what is this doing to us? Smart home is so interesting. I think that's a separate conversation. Either. <laughs> um, but um, one of the things I, I think um, having the internet with us all the time, right? And not just something that you dial into, right? Like that some of us might remember um, is the way that we are, our, our lives are completely enmeshed, preoccupied with the digital world. That is, we, we send an email, we, we uh, post um, a tweet or a, a photo, and we may physically, with our bodies, go on with our day doing other things, but a part of our consciousness is dedicated to wondering, well, what's happened to that email or that post? Has someone responded? Did anyone even like the picture that I sent uh, or that I posted? Um, and so is a kind of, I talk about it um, with the phrase permanent connectivity, right? That we are permanently connected to the internet. There is. Um, not just that we are constantly able to access information and communication and that we are constantly accessible to other people, right, 24-7, but that even when we are not actually looking at a screen or responding to a notification, there's actually a part of us internally, right, that has become dedicated um, to attending to um, what is happening in our digital in our digital worlds, and and that can have a impoverishing effect on us when there is never silence, when there is no stillness, when we are never wholly just with ourselves. Dr. Song, that's incredibly helpful. I was just uh, talking to someone this week even about how, whether it's a tweet, it's an email, it's a text message even, and all of these things connected to technology 
we can't just send these things away and then forget about them anymore. It's not like putting a letter in the mail and you know it will be days, weeks, or months before you hear a response. As you said, now our, our subconscious and our attention is dedicated to kind of worrying about that that thing and how it comes back to us. And that I think that affects us a whole lot more even than we realize. Um, and it shapes us in, in un, oftentimes unhealthy ways because we can't just be in one place at one time with dedicated attention to family or church or whatever the case is. Um, what are some practical steps then that our listeners can take away to have a more healthy engagement with technology? One of the things I think about is the ways that because our contemporary lives are so filled with technological opportunities, shall we say, um, that, that we actually need to be intentional to create space, whether it's physical space or time in our day um, that, that I call sacred, right? That they are sacred places or times mm. yeah. that are free actually of the demands of the day, free mm. of um, the noise, free of even some of the entertainment, right? That's fun and relaxing, um, but that is genuinely sacred because of the time uh, or the experience we might have when we're sitting down with another person and perhaps sharing a meal with mm. them or having a conversation yeah. or sacred because it is time that we are in solitude and um, able to attend more intentionally to um, the Holy Spirit's promptings or the scriptures mm. or yeah. to practices of prayer and meditation. And so I think the practical steps, right, um, can be really small, actually. When I wake up in the morning, maybe the first thing I do isn't to check my calendar or to check my email or to check my social media. Maybe the first thing I do is to carve out 15 minutes that's just quiet, right? Yeah. Um, where I smell the coffee, where I actually look to see how the sun is doing, if it's coming up uh, this morning and I can see it through the clouds or that I can pray um, or read scripture, that those little practices that, that shift us away, right? Yeah. From kind of first checking um, the technology can make a big difference. Yeah, that's huge. You highlight some what you call pathways of meaningful resistance to the quote, soft tyranny of the digital age. What are some examples of these, these pathways of meaningful resistance? Here, I, I think about the ways in which our technologies form us, right? That we have these uh, very often compulsive habits of checking our, our phones uh, when we're standing in line um, or mm. waiting for the water to boil. Um, that- um, Have you been spying on me, Dr. Song? Because I'm pretty sure that's- <laughs> I've been spying on me. <laughs> um, and, and how in some ways we, that, that leads us to a life that is often, um, prioritizing or, or suggesting that we see productivity, right, as the most important thing, um, um, or that we are being driven, right, by the demands of our day. And, and so when I think of meaningful resistance, I think about um, where can we actually find pockets of freedom, right, where our relationship with our technology is not one characterized by being driven by it, but that there's freedom, that we can use our technologies and it's about our habits, right? It's about creating habits 
and routines, um, I use the term liturgy, borrowing from Jamie Smith's work, counter liturgies, right, that, that push back against the secular liturgies that we kind of adopt through our culture, society, these counter liturgies that really um, redirect our loves, redirect us towards the kingdom of God. And so some of it might, again, as simple as something I call monotasking, right? Um, we use our technologies very often to do lots of things at the same time, mm. um, which yeah. feels brilliant and awesome <laughs> initially, um, but it's exhausting, right? And often actually more inefficient um, than we think. And so monotasking is something where you actually just do one thing. Um, so I want to ask you about that. So you talked about um, that we have this, you know, these devices at the palm of our hands or the tips of our fingers that make it possible for us, I suppose, to be to, to multitask, as, as you're saying, instead of monotasking, which might be better. But you said it, it actually makes us quite inefficient. So my question is, so often the promise of new technologies is it will put you in better control and will save you time. Yes. Are those are those true things, but we're just we don't have enough self-control to manage them well, or are they lies from the start? In some ways, they give us more control. We have more choices. We have more opportunities. And in some ways, we can get more done because we can attend to multiple things. However, um, the technologies are built in such a way that, you know, these companies have interests as well. Um, they, uh, you know, a social media platform wants us to stay engaged on their pl platform. And there's studies that show that when we're multitasking and we think, oh, we're going to just write back to that one email, um, respond one email um, and get back to our work. Um, but usually any sort of slight, like, you know, I'm going to go check this, do that. It takes at least 20 minutes to get back yeah. whatever you were doing. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it is us right? Um, we're just wired in certain ways. But I think there's also something about a lot of technologies and services that we do use um, that know our vulnerabilities, understand our human desires, belonging, and affirmation. And it's super hard to stop looking at the social media feed, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you have posts that are getting responses, right? I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just difficult for us because we, we all for that sense of communion and, and connection with other people. So I think it's a bit of both. And what I argue in the book is we just need to better understand our technologies and what the companies um, and producers are after in our use and also better um, understand ourselves, right? And, yeah. and actually be somewhat sober in our reflection about our own individual propensities. Dr. Song, thank you so much for joining us today. Super important work that you're doing. Uh, good questions and discussions and answers here. And uh, I hope that we can have you on again because I've got only about 15 or 20 more questions to ask. <laughs> uh, I'm sure as technology grows and, and your research deepens and the questions grow as well. We look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. 
Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for another edition of On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where we tell you what books we're reading right now. So, Dr. Quinn, what's on your bookshelf? So on my bookshelf are a number of books, but uh, Nathaniel, our fantastic editor, asked me only to talk about one, although I do have to say, let me just mention a few others. that I'll. So there's one that is right beside my bed, literally right now, called A Look at Life from the Deer Stand. I actually read this book as a teenager. Somebody gave it to me for Christmas, and I thought that's a book I can get into. And then my son, bless his heart, my 12-year-old, gave me that book again for Christmas this year. I hadn't seen it in years, but actually it was a leather-bound cover. And so now it just looks so good beside the bed. Uh, so I'm enjoying reading back through some of these devotions, A Look at Life from a Deer Stand by Stephen Chapman. But nonetheless, I, I digress. This is the book that I really wanted to mention today. It's called For the Life of the World by Father Alexander Schmemann. Father Schmemann was uh, an Eastern Orthodox priest. He was the dean of St. Vladimir's Seminary uh, for a little over 20 years uh, up, up in New York. Um, Father Schmemann, obviously from a different uh, faith tradition or Christian tradition than we are as Baptists, but he wrote this little book that was originally a series of lectures uh, called For the Life of the World. And let me just, let me just read uh, a couple of the opening lines so you can get the flavor for this, and I, and I use that word flavor on purpose. Opening, opening line of the book is this, Man is what he eats. With this statement, the German philosopher Feuerbach thought he had put, it, put an end to idealistic speculations about human nature. In fact, however, he was, without knowing it, expressing the most religious idea of man. And he goes on then to sort of continue teasing out this metaphor of eating, and he calls, it, he calls the banquet the central image of the Bible. The central image of the whole Bible is the banquet table. And he goes on then to, to connect this specifically with what we would call the Lord's Supper or what many would call the Eucharist. And ju- just making that simple connection that human beings are what we eat and then making that connection with the Lord's Supper, Christ himself even saying that unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no participation in me. You have no part in me. Um, already you can see just how rich this metaphor is. I won't spoil it for you, uh, but the book as a whole, uh, if you don't have time to read the whole thing, it's not a long book, but chapter one by itself, which is entitled uh, For the Life of the World, is, is worth the price of the book uh, as a whole. Um, I also would mention, uh, I, I was introduced to this book by a colleague, Dr. Uh, Joshua Wagner, who has taught uh, worship courses and music courses for us here for a while. But he was telling me some, some years ago that at Calvin Seminary, there was a conference, this is probably 15 years ago now, a conference uh, with, with people connected to worship leadership, whether they teach in seminaries and colleges or whether they're practitioners in churches uh, from all different denominations. And they did a survey, conducted a survey of these two or 300 different people at Calvin that day, uh, asking them, what is the number one most influential book on how you think about Christian worship? And, of course, our minds, we tend to go to probably some, some practical tool or some guy with a guitar or whatever, but it was actually For the Life of the World by Alexander Schmemann because of the richness of the imagery, because of how deeply connected it is to the text, and also how deeply connected it is to what we do with ordinances or sacraments in our churches. So, uh, again, he's Eastern Orthodox, so obviously some things that you're, you're not going to agree with, uh, but I say, as always, um, take the meat, spit out the bones, and you will not 
regret it from Father Smimmon. Thank you, Dr. Quinn, and thank you all for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, take 30 seconds and go to Apple Podcast and give us a rating and review. That small step goes a long way to helping us spread the word about Christ and culture. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <music>